We have the privilege of four incredible and robust thinkers sharing the stage tonight. Together they will consider whether we are on the cusp of no return. No return from what might be one question. What is the world that we know? Where has the world come from? And where is it heading? And you could be forgiven for feeling a little apocalyptic at the moment, a little existential, uh, given events in Egypt, given Ebola, Syria, Iraq, Gaza, Ukraine, planes are falling out of the air by nefarious means or they're disappearing without a trace. Where have they gone? We've seen the beheading of a journalist. We've seen the rise of Islamic State, the fall of countless species other than our own. Climate change, where's it all heading? Is human stupidity getting the better of us or will human ingenuity save the day? These are some of the themes that we'd love to talk to tonight. If you're a tweeter, hash, fody. If you've got a mobile phone, put it to silent or vibrate and have a wonderful night. Let me introduce Tim. F <laughs> Tim Flannery is a mammologist, a paleontologist, an activist. He's editor and author of over 20 books. We know him, of course, as Australian of the Year in 2007. He co-founded the Copenhagen Climate Council. He's former chief scientist of the Federal Climate Commission. Uh, he is now currently leader of the independent, crowdsourced Climate Council. We have... We have Elizabeth Colbert. She is a multi-award winning American environmental journalist and author. She's a staff writer on that incredible magazine, The New Yorker. She's author of several books, including relevant to tonight, Field Notes from a Catastrophe and The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History most recently. We have with us Steven Pinker. He is Johnston, family professor of psychology at Harvard University. His books, The Blank Slate, how the Mind Works were both Pulitzer Prize finalists. His most recent books, and this one's particularly pertinent to tonight, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, might be counterintuitive for some of us. And more recently, uh, I think just out, isn't it? The Sense of Style, A Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. Great to have you here. And we have... which means you've also got to clap Elizabeth. <laughs> and Jan Talen is a founding engineer of Skype and Kazaa. He is a co-founder of the personalised uh, medicine company Metamed. He is also co-founder of a very interesting centre at Cambridge, and I think they're also sowing the seeds of something at MIT, uh, the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. He describes himself, I think, as a futurist, a hacker, an investor, and a physicist. Welcome. <laughs> this idea of existential risk, this idea that uh, a given risk might threaten the very existence of us as humans. I want to ask you all, actually, is there one existential risk that really worries you? Elizabeth. Well, I, I think that um, there are, I think that we pose a much greater risk, to be honest, to everything else uh, with whom we share the planet um, at this point uh, than, than we pose for our to ourselves, there are you know, 7.2 billion of us on the planet right now, so we uh, are, are, are robustly represented. How's that? Um, so I'm gonna leave it to others to, to study, to give us the existential risks that are gonna, gonna do us in, and I guess I'll focus on the risks that we pose to doing other things in. Well, and the risk that we pose to them is a risk that's posed to ourselves. Potentially, though we, we, we've proved ourselves pretty adept at you know, moving into the spaces of other species. Um, so, and, and as I say, we're, there are more of us than there ever were before, even as many, many other species are, are winking out. So it's, it's sort of unclear uh, exactly what our relationship is uh, between doing in other things and, and thriving ourselves. That's, that, that remains very much to be seen. Okay, I'll come back to you on that. Stephen <laughs> Pinker. 
I guess I'm uh, skeptical of existential risk as, a, as an important uh, a topic for two reasons. One of them is that there's a long history, maybe going back to the book of Revelation, of apocalyptic thinking that always comes up in new guises. In every, whatever the newest technology is, people always imagine how it could be an existential risk. And the history of apocalyptic predictions is actually kind of amusing in retrospect. In the 1930s, there was fear that if you combine the poison gas from World War I with airplanes, then you could have the threat of airplanes spreading poison gas over the surface of the earth and extinguishing humanity, something we don't really worry about anymore, even though it's still technologically possible. And uh, when I grew up, there were both scientists and political scientists who said that it was a certainty that the US and the USSR would fight a, uh, a nuclear war ending humanity, and that certainty didn't happen. And then there was polywater, a polymerized form of water that would turn all of the world's water into uh, thick goo. There's the, the, the nanobots that were going to consume every bit of organic matter and smother us in gray goo. The problem with existential threats is they're very easy to imagine if you simply play them out in your, on the stage of your imagination. And they're often, I think, speak more to our anxieties than to, uh, to credible threats. I guess I'm more worried about sub-existential threats. That is, rather than worrying about the very last of the 7.2 billion people on Earth today, I think it would be bad enough if there's you know, 10,000 or 100,000 or a million who get killed. And we know that there are things that can do that kind of damage. We don't have to play out far-fetched scenarios to imagine that people are going to be dying of hunger and disease and war and genocide. Uh, my priority uh, would be these sub-existential threats that are, that are certain, they're happening every day, and that uh, affect the fortunes of actual people. That might not wipe us out, but will make our existence intolerable. Do you think, Stephen, as someone who uh, has thought profoundly and deeply over many years about the nature of the human mind, is there something about the human mind that makes us want to catastrophize? Yes, so there's, there, um, uh, we, people are, uh, uh, probably are overly cautious about possible uh, lethal threats for a, a good reason, namely that uh, the, uh, the cost of uh, having a false alarm to a non-existent threat is generally less than the cost of missing what could be a lethal threat. So we see uh, and often hallucinate threats that aren't there because if it wastes a little bit of our time, that's better than missing the threat altogether. So there's a built-in asymmetry in the hits versus the false alarms. Mm -hmm. But there's also a kind of, um, uh, since apocalyptic uh, visions and threats are always tempting to people who want to be prophets, uh, to the various Jeremiahs, there is a way of establishing yourself as uh, a, a seer, a prophet, a moral entrepreneur, if you see some danger that, uh, that other people don't. And it's, it's almost a guaranteed route to, uh, to fame and respect to be the one that calls out the, uh, the danger that no one else has noticed. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the, the first phenomenon, namely you can't be too careful, we tend probably to give too much credence to uh, novel threats that we haven't thought about before that someone brings to our attention. So if they're novel, they, uh, they attract our attention, and that may miss the reality check as to how probable the, the threat is. Okay. Jan, we've taken this, this theme of existential risk from the centre that you've helped, far, uh, you know, you've developed at, at Cambridge. So clearly you think that existential risks are worth paying attention to. Yeah, so um, quickly answer uh, Stephen here. Uh, I think it's lazy thinking to uh, basically categorize uh, uh, like arguments uh, based on certain property that they have and then like kind of uh, have a blank answer uh, to those arguments. You actually have to, have to look at each individual argument and, and evaluate them on their merit. However, indeed, there are a lot of people uh, who, who do that and, uh, and uh, therefore, the, uh, uh, like one of the things that I, that I say is that uh, uh, although the Cambridge Centre, which has now been in existence uh, 
for about two years, and uh, we actually haven't accomplished any research yet, uh, as opposed to their, uh, our uh, sister organization in Oxford. Uh, it still has made a really significant contribution to the world, to the world. and it's, uh, it, uh, the contribution is that uh, it gives a canonical answer to the question, existential risks? Says who? Because so you're you looking though at very you're looking at a sort of suite of technologies, aren't you, that you think could have a dangerous flip side. They might offer great benefit, but they might also catapult us into something terrible. Exactly. So, um, and I'm, I'm a technologist myself, so I don't. Uh, uh, I'm <laughs> being. I'm very far from. Uh, uh, from being against technology, uh, but uh, it's just important to realize that the reason why technologies uh, get better over time when, com when looked at through the kind of eyes of human values is that there is a market mechanism that basically rewards technologies that uh, people want. However, once you have technologies that are more powerful than the market, that don't actually need the market, once you have superintelligence that, that's able to um, arrange the atoms uh, in, in, this, uh, in the visible universe, it's not going to wait, sit and wait uh, uh, for humans to buy things from it. Mm -hmm. Tim, is climate change your ultimate existential threat? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I'm an evolutionary biologist by training, and I'm well and truly aware that less than 1% of the species that have ever existed are still in existence. So taking the long view, the odds are against us, I'd say. I think it's a reasonable kind of assumption. <laughs> Um, in the short term, uh, I don't, uh, you know, I, I guess what I'd say is that we as a species are doing something that no other species has ever done as far as we know in the history of the universe. We are creating a superorganism, if you want, or a, a coherent entity which is mediated through intelligence. Now, superorganisms have existed before. The termites build cities, ants, there are slave ants. There are ants that have agriculture. There are social... The bees have a, an oligarchy of, of, of democratic process-making. All that sort of stuff exists. But we are doing it through deliberative intelligence. So I guess, to me, there is a risk in that. Will this work? Is it, is it possible that as the individual becomes more powerful in these ever more technological societies that a psychotic individual or a group of them could bring all of us down. I think that's a fair risk. Um, in terms of climate change, my biggest concern is that uh, disruption to Earth's climate system will reduce the available resource base, if you want, to people to the point where individual groups of humans will start fighting over the few remaining resources. And therefore, we'll have a collapse of the superorganism, this, this intelligent superorganism that we're in the midst now of creating using technology like the internet. Mm. So that's the big threat to me. We'll just go back to being barbarians. Do you take this at all into account in your very dense, long, fabulous thesis that violence has diminished over the existence of humanity? Do, do you take that into account, that... that, that <laughs> we're at risk of violating ourselves in this way. <coughs> Are you asking about uh, climate change as itself? A well, just and also this, this notion a... that, that you could... Yes, we might... Homicides might reduce over time, and there's a number of arguments that you make really cogently in, in your book. But at the end of the day, it might be one person that takes us down, or it might be the fact that we've undermined our sort of... Um, the substrate on which we exist so much that we'll all be taken down. That's a kind of form of violence, isn't it? Well, I, I don't um, use the word violence to refer to everything that's bad. So if there is pollution, if there's species extinction, uh, if there's disease, those are all terrible things. But I think that if you call them all violence, then, then the word no longer has any coherent meaning, nor can you understand the causes or the ways of alleviating violence. There is a question of whether, uh, if, if there is degradation of uh, the ecosystem, will that reverse the trend toward declining violence? Will there, will there be resource wars, water wars, oil wars, etc.? Uh, and I do have a section in the book that addresses that, and I think the answer is probably not. Now, this isn't a reason to be complacent about climate change because it could cause a great deal of misery and waste even if it doesn't consist of uh, people going to war. But studies that look at uh, climate stress at time one 
and organized violence at time two uh, find very little relationship, usually uh, zero. And at first people are surprised about that because they, a lot of people think that wars are fought over in competition over resources. Then when you start to think about individual wars, and you try to think of a war that has been fought over a diminishing re resource, it's really hard to think of any. So the statistics actually, when, when you think back on, okay, well, what, was, uh, the, um, what, what are the current wars over, uh, say, in, in uh, Ukraine or in uh, the uh, Islamic State? They're over ideas and ideology and nationalism and tribalism and uh, uh, seeking perfect justice and rectifying historic injustices. Uh, there are, it's very hard to find a, a war that is fought over some pool of water or oil that, uh, that two parties both, both want to control. Although, by proxy, just, land. Tim? If I could just respond, Steve, I think my thought about that is it's, I don't envision a war between nations over this, but what I imagine is a collapse of authority and a collapse of the intelligent superorganism within that group so that then individuals within that are not, no longer bound by the rule of law um, because that's vanished, and then you get conflict, internal conflict within those groups, and the weakest will always um, be the one that, uh, that, that, is, that is hardest done by. Yeah, certainly anarchy can be a, uh, a big uh, impetus to, to violence. Uh, I mean, in, in general, when you have anarchy in the sense of no effective government, you also have anarchy in the sense of violent chaos. Uh, but it's not, uh, it's not ordained that if there are resource shortages or um, population movements that governments will lose their control over a uh, territory. I, I, this, again, this is not to minimize the seriousness of climate change, it's just that the, the negative consequences are bad enough uh, as they are, an increase in war may not be uh, one that we have to deal with on top of that. Let's come back to that. But we're narcissists at heart, aren't we, Elizabeth Colbert? We're self-obsessed. What you've been obsessing about, though, is every other species on this planet and what's happening to them. What is happening to them? What is, what is the, what is, what defines the Anthropocene that, that people call, some call this era that we are living in, this, this era of a possible sixth math, mass extinction? Well, what defines the Anthropocene, and you know, this isn't my, my idea, this is the idea of the people proposing you know, that we live in a new geological, they, they would say epoch, the geologists would say, um, is that human beings have taken over from you know, what I will very broadly call the, the great forces of, of nature, the geological forces that uh, traditionally took us you know, from one geological period to another, and, and, and we've taken their place, and there's a, you know, a, a lot of ways you could look at this, and I'm not going to sort of give a geology lesson. I'm not a geologist, but, you know, if you just look at what Tim was referring to, the carbon cycle, you know, how much CO2 we're putting up there, uh, those, we are absolutely, you know, overwhelming uh, any natural processes that would happen. We're taking carbon that's, uh, and this is happening, you know, right here in Australia, every single day we're taking carbon that has been buried for tens of millions of years, and we're putting it back up into the atmosphere very, very rapidly. So we're changing the planet very rapidly. I think there's an increasingly broad consensus that the planet has not undergone such rapid change since the demise of the dinosaurs uh, 66 million years ago. So that's a pretty sobering thought. And, and what the result of that is going to be, you know, the last time we had very rapid change, uh, we lost something like three quarters of the species on Earth. And when we look at extinction rates today, uh, they're very, very high. There was just a paper uh, published in Science saying that they're, you know, about a thousand times as high as they would be under sort of normal background conditions. And, and those two uh, facts that we're changing the planet very rapidly and that a lot of other species are going extinct are obviously intimately related. Is it legitimate, though, to call this a mass extinction event in the way that the last five have been? And, of course, each mass extinction event over the history of life on Earth has been caused by quite different things at different times. Glaciation, global warming. Is it, is it a mass extinction event that we're seeing? Well, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're sort of 
living through it, I guess if you would ask you know, the dinosaurs, they might not have been able to answer that either. I, I don't think anyone can tell you right now, you know, are, are we you know, sort of on the verge of one? Are we in it? Are we you know, pretty deep into it? I mean, you can, you can argue about these things, but they, they, are things, they are events that happen in what's geologically a very short period of time, but in a human lifetime, they're, they're infinite. So uh, we, we, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, ask me, ask me when it's over. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> what, what makes this, this time different from the previous mass extinctions? Well, I think it gets back to what you know, everyone here has mentioned, that we are an, a creature, uh, that, that intelligence, it's, it's, it's effectively being a product of, of human intelligence. And, and you know, we can debate, there's all sorts of debates, is this, is this sort of a natural force? Well, you know, is an asteroid a natural force? Those are, those are sort of semantic questions that I'm not sure are that useful. but. Um, this is the first time, I think, that, that one species uh, is causing the extinction of many other species. In, in, in the past, I just don't think we can identify any other instance of that. We're the ultimate weedy species, aren't we, is how it's described. Is there any one um, species that you've tracked, and you've done some incredible field reporting along the way, that has been emblematic for you of what's happening, or that's really just wrapped its hands, wrapped its paws or whatever around your heart <laughs> and little, said, oh, this is little, heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wrote about a species that Tim and I were, 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 just, were just talking about this, a Panamanian golden frog, which is a, a beautiful, 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 very deadly poisonous frog uh, in Panama that's now extinct in the wild. And um, uh, they were a symbol of good luck in Panama and uh, they were there was so much concern over them as this disease swept through Panama. They were a species that was done in by, by a pathogen um, that they took the frogs out of the, out of the rainforest and put them in a hotel. They literally put them up in a, a hotel to try to save a remnant population, which they have. There, are, there is a small remnant population. It's incredible, isn't it, that they would do that? I mean, when you, when you look at the lengths that people will go like that, and there's all sorts of amazing examples around the world uh, for people working with endangered species, does that give you hope for humanity? Well, I, I think it shows the sort of, you know, which is definitely a, a theme that's already come out here, it shows the, the, the sort of double, doubleness of human intelligence. You know, it, it, it has a, a, a real double edge, and um, it, it, it's hard to say, uh, you know, what, where, where, where it's all going, but, but human intelligence can be used for, for great and wonderful and genius uh, sort of things, as we all know, and, and, and it also can be, can be used or can inadvertently uh, cause a tremendous amount of damage. Tim, you've thought about this and written lyrically about it too, and what, why should we care about a toxic Panamanian frog? Well, because it's a beautiful thing that at the moment we can't recreate. Um, look, if I could just go back to that issue of, um, of the sixth extinction and the Anthropocene. I mean, they are geological concepts, and I don't want to get too technical, but you would know about the Anthropocene through reading the record in the rocks that are being laid down today. So if you ask, for example, well, rhinoceroses, you know, they were all over Eurasia, 10,000 years ago, there was millions of them. Today, there's 20,000. You're not going to get a bone of one of those 20,000 preserved in the fossil record. Statistically, not going to happen. It's mm. just too rare. So th that change will be read in the rocks for all of the large mammals that have vanished. You know, they're, they're, they've been taken over by sheep and goats and people. They're the bones you'll find now, you know, if you look in the geological record. So I think the Anthropocene will be recognised by future beings very clearly in the rocks, and we are in the middle of it now. But there is an issue that I, it, it intrigues me. I, I belong I, to a group of scientists called the De-Extinction Group, and they are looking at how you bring back species from extinction. And this group is probably working beyond the current reach of technology. But nevertheless, what they're trying to do is really intriguing. So there's a group, for example, who are trying to recreate the passenger pigeon. So they're identifying the nearest relative of the passenger pigeon, look at how many genetic changes are in the code between that and, and then the other bird, and working out how you would do that through selective breeding and through genetic manipulation. Um, there's other people who are looking at um, northern white rhinos. You know, there's, there's skin, this is a rhino subspecies, it's very rare, down to the last few individuals. But there's specimens in museums, and there are serious attempts at taking skin biopsies from those specimens 
looking at the DNA in it and trying to reconstitute another individual which died 40, 50 years ago for that species. In Australia, we've seen researchers take um, extinct frogs and take DNA from them to, to grow new individuals. So I, I'm, I think we live in a whole new world. We're, we're just on the edge of it. And but it, is that the ultimate act of narcissism, that we will bring back a species that we've killed off <laughs> and there is no longer the habitat for which it will, within which it will thrive. I, I, I disagree with you that there may no longer be the habitat. The habitat may be there, but the individuals have been hunted into extinction. Surely the ultimate act of narcissism is causing extinction in the first place. Elizabeth? Because you've been, in, you've been to San Diego and visited what was called the frozen zoo, which is a similar sort of concept, isn't it? Well, it's the source of a lot of the sort of tissue that, that Tim, Tim is talking about, and, and, and they're very, very hesitant, I should say, to, to talk about de-extinction. They don't, they don't sort of want it to be seen as this kind of, you know, Frankensteinian lab <laughs> where they're going to, you know, put all these species that were driving extinct and, and, and resurrect them one day. But I, I think, and, and I guess, um, I guess I part ways with Tim here, and, 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 and as an evolutionary you know, biologist, I, I, I guess I'll throw the question back at you. I mean, you create a passenger pigeon, two passenger pigeons. What, what, what have you created? I mean, passenger pigeons, uh, and in fact, on Monday, uh, we can all celebrate or mourn the 100th anniversary of the death of the very last passenger pigeon, a bird uh, who went by the name of Martha, uh, who died uh, on September 1st, 1914. Um, you know, what, what have you got, even if you have a pair of passenger pigeons, that, you know, birds are very intelligent and they learn from their parents, and, and who are they going to learn from? So, so I, I'm not sure what we have, even if we have, even if we were able to manipulate the DNA of the passenger pigeon's nearest relative, and then, and then we'd have something, you know, that was sort of like a passenger pigeon, but isn't a passenger pigeon, and what's the point of all that? Well, I think that that's a good point, <laughs> but maybe... Um... Maybe it's to have a more functional ecology. So, for example, if you could bring back woolly mammoths, they are keystone species on the Siberian tundra and may allow the Siberian tundra to persist in greater diversity and for longer than if they're not there. I mean, you know, species are functional elements in ecosystems. And I agree with you what you say about the learned behaviour. How in the hell do you teach a mammoth to be a mammoth? These are great questions. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, I'm sort of excited at the idea we might be able to, you know, take the first step on a journey to recreate these... Let's consider the limits ecosystems. of intelligence. Uh, and Jan, you've taken a great interest, for example, in machine intelligence. This notion of building artificial intelligence or intelligences um, in various forms and shapes so that they may function in various settings. But if you take that through to a thought experiment, where does it take you? Why do you express a little bit of existential angst about the future of artificial intelligence? First of all, I, I actually would like to riff a little bit on the previous discussion because uh, one way to present existential risks uh, in a kind of more intuitively understandable form is that they really are about our risks to the environment. Uh, so, so like, uh, even if you talk about like, things that are easy to understand, like asteroid risks, uh, every 10 million years or so, there's a big enough asteroid that comes along and, and sterilizes the planet. It's not because you personally will be hit by that asteroid, but it's because it, the asteroid uh, will raise the temperature or basically change the environment in, sufficiently so you wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be conductive for, for life anymore. Uh, and also, like, we're not actively hostile to other species, uh, perhaps with the exception of few, but it, it's, uh, it's just that our massive manipulation of the environment uh, uh, and uh, as a manipulation that's a side effect of, of other things that we do uh, that actually makes the life very miserable to, to them. And, and actually, the same thing that I'm... I'm, I'm uh, conscious of, uh, in the context of uh, all powerful technologies, uh, including AI. Uh, and uh, sort of the ultimate argument uh, with AI is that it's, it's a kind of a meta-technology. Uh, it's a technology that pos possibly can develop its own technology. Uh, and that was already pointed out uh, uh, 50 years ago uh, by a British statistician I.J. Good, who basically pointed out that, look, like if you once, once we are able to create something that is as smart as us, uh, then, like, invention is also an intellectual activity. So, it, by definition, it is as good as us in invention. So, 
one way of putting it is that I'm not necessarily worried about human creations, I'm worried about uh, machine creations. Mm. Mm. Um, Stephen, just to think about, well, actually, I'll ask you, uh, Jan, this sort of the techno-optimism of our times, which is that technology will solve our problems, it might also uh, retrieve some extinct species for our zoos. Um, I support that. <laughs> but also, I mean, some believe that geoengineering will also save us, for we can continue doing what we do and we might be able to apply geoengineering to the environment and solve climate change as well. That's, that's a kind of techno-optimism on a kind of wild scale, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's important to, uh, whenever you are, and that's a general statement, that whenever you are developing uh, powerful technology, be kind of like asymmetric about, uh, about the consequences. Like, you, you, sure, you might have like the best intentions and best, uh, uh, even perhaps most likely scenario in mind, but there are other, like, other scenarios, and if you don't take them into account, you basically risk everyone, and, and that's, that's just not going... And, and uh, yeah, with, with terra, like, things like terraforming and geo, geoengineering, these are instances of powerful technologies that, indeed, if things go well, they might actually work and, and, and stop, reverse the global warming and things like that. But, but uh, we have to be very, very sure that, things, that, that we know what we're doing before, before we attempt that. Mm. You might have a thought on geoengineering, and I'll squeeze it, and then I want to come to Stephen. Um, Look, I, I really do. I think that people who talk about geoengineering fail to understand the scale of the problem, right? We are already geoengineering the planet by virtue of the fact that we are emitting 43 gigatons, that's a number with nine zeros after it, uh, of, of um, CO2 into the atmosphere every year, right? So if you want to take, reduce that by one-tenth, just imagine we want to do that as a geoengineering process, what you'd have to do is take all of the agricultural waste in the world, all of the forestry waste in the world, and 100 million hectares of energy crop like sugarcane, take all of that production, capture the carbon from it and store it under the planet. That's for one-tenth of what we're currently putting into the atmosphere. So the scale of the geoengineering proposals that we have are beyond comprehension. And I believe that most of them are simply not feasible if you're looking at reduction of CO2. Right, they're just, they're too big. We are already geoengineering through burning enough coal to put 43 gigatons of carbon into I mean, the One atmosphere. of the more kind of incredulous examples was, let's just tow, change the orbit of the Earth. So, oh, when you get to so, that crazy stuff, I don't know. So that it's stuff, not know, rotating quite as close to the sun as, I mean, this is the sort of fantastical imaginings that people have. Stephen, when people look at the world today, they are seeing Syria, um, Nigeria, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Gaza, the Ukraine. There's a, there's a sense that if you, somehow these might all somehow stitch up together and the apocalypse will land. I mean, that's, this is the sort of feeling that people have. How do you, in surveying the nature of violence across the history of humanity, how do you feel at a time like this? Yeah. <clears throat> well, first, you've got to make sure you don't make simple errors in you know, arithmetic and logic. So a change over time requires at least two points in time. So if you say, well, there's a, bit, a, a nasty war going on in Syria, that doesn't say anything about what direction the trend is, because that, all that says is that the rate of violence now is not zero. And it's not zero. But in order to say anything about whether it's gone up or down, you've got to compare the rate of violence now to the rate of violence at some other uh, uh, point in time. And people tend to forget all of the even nastier wars and more prevalent wars that took place uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, getting uh, your impression of the world from the news is systematically biasing because news is about stuff that happens. It's mm. not about stuff that doesn't happen. It's about stuff that's happening now. Uh, so uh, if there's some part of the world that is currently at peace, you never see a reporter there with a microphone saying, here I am in Sri Lanka and there's no civil war. Or, and now we'll switch to a reporter in Angola. Oh, no civil war here either. And this is above and beyond the, 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 uh, the fact that the, the media often uh, work by the, the watchword, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, I mean, that's even above the fact that violence does attract attention. Mm. Simply the fact that you're recording events means that 
the media are going to be biased toward war as opposed to peace, because peace is not an event, it's the absence of an event. So the only way that you could tell whether uh, we're living in more or less violent times than usual is first of all to count the number of wars, count the number of people that are killed in wars, and compare it to the same counts at different periods of time. As a proportion of population, I guess that's a more and meaningful, a yes, meaningful yeah. measure. Because any tendency consists of the number of occurrences divided by the number of opportunities for the occurrence to take place. So yes, you can't simply just count the number of, uh, uh, of bodies, but you also have to count the number of bodies that are still walking around because they haven't been killed. And so when you do that, you find that there is, uh, certainly in the last two years, because of the war in Syria, there has been an uptick uh, compared to, say, the year 2005. But if you look at the entire graph, say, since the end of World War II, not even counting the, the carnage of World War II, but say, starting at the clock at 1946, you get a kind of downward roller coaster, and then you have a little bit of an uptick because of Syria. People are surprised at that. How come it's so small? We keep reading all the headlines about it. But that's because you're not reading headlines about things like the Iran-Iraq War or the uh, Civil War in Colombia and, and all of the other uh, wars that have fizzled out at the same time that Syria has increased. You've described this second half of the, you know, the second half of, of the 20th century on as the great peace, or the, and then the new peace, moving into the new yeah, the long peace. peace. The yeah. long peace, that's yeah. right. Get my nomenclature right. Yeah. Uh, do you wake up every morning, though, going, feeling you have to justify that, that, that description of the times we live in? Well, I'm, uh, people often find it... Uh, um, hard to believe, people are often incredulous. Uh, I think because their impression of the state of the world comes from the news. And there's always enough violence to fill the news. And so if, and, and because of a uh, quirk of human psychology, namely we estimate risk by how easily we can recall examples. Now that's statistically unsound. Uh, the way to estimate risk is the number of occurrences divided by the number of opportunities. Uh, but that's not the way the human mind evolved. Uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky coined the term availability heuristic to characterize the way that the untutored mind does estimate risk. If I were to ask you how uh, much in danger are you of being eaten by a shark, your first inclination would not be to go look up the number of shark attacks and divide by the number of swimmers, but to recall, oh gee, did I read recently about someone getting eaten by a shark in the, in the, in the, uh, in the papers? That's the way the mind works, but that isn't the, way, uh, the optimal way of, of uh, assessing risk. And so I have to battle both the inherent bias of uh, the picture of the world conveyed by the news and the cognitive psychological quirk that we are affected by incidents rather than ratios. You've said um, that uh, the, the, the task with the book, The Better Angels of Nature, was to convince people that the past seems less innocent and the present less sinister. What about the future? Uh, well, uh, the, uh, you know, I guess it's... Yogi Berra said it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, I think there, <laughs> there, uh, there are different ca categories of violence, and that's why in my book and in my talk tomorrow I, uh, I divide them, because they have different causes and they have different dynamics. One-on-one -on -one homicide is not the same as uh, war between organized combat units, which in turn is not the same as institutionalized violence, such as capital punishment or mutilations. So there are different stories for each one. And in terms of projecting into the future, there's some kinds of violence where I think it would be foolhardy to make a prediction. Just, so terrorism, for example. In a world of seven billion people, uh, they're always going to be, uh, there's always going to be someone with a grievance. Uh, it's always going to be easy for them to get their hands on something that will kill people. Uh, that will be stoked by the fact that it is an instant way, in fact, the only instant way of getting worldwide fame. Kill a lot of innocent people, that's the only guaranteed way of making the headlines. Um, and so, uh, I, I would not be willing to make a prediction there isn't going to be a, a, a terrorist attack tomorrow. Uh, likewise, uh, civil wars and insurgencies involving um, small, isolated factions. The world has, uh, again, with seven billion people, more than, probably more than seven billion grievances, nothing is going to prevent some group of young men from getting together and forming the popular front for the liberation of whatever and starting a little civil war somewhere. On the other hand, there are other categories of violence that I think are more uh, predictable and controllable. 
Uh, interstate war, wars between two governments. Those have been in uh, a steady decline. Wars between great powers, big, rich countries, have pretty much vanished. Uh, there hasn't been one since 1953. Even with provocations like what we're seeing in the Ukraine, uh, not even the most hawkish of American hawks is even considering declaring war on uh, Russia over Ukraine. That's just no longer a live option in the minds of even of the hawks. So it suggests to me that anything can happen. There can be rude and ugly and nasty surprises, but uh, barring some kind of catastrophe, wars between great powers uh, are unlikely to uh, occur, and even between uh, two different governments. For institutionalized violence, I think there too the trends are uh, favorable, that um, globally speaking, um, say capital punishment, despite its uh, anachronistic popularity in the United States is on the way out even in the United States. Uh, mm. The trend lines are clear and it's always dangerous to extrapolate, but if you were to look globally at the number of countries that have abolished capital punishment, then the world is on course to eliminate it globally by the year 2026. So that, but do, so do it, we, those, in, yeah. in, in presenting such a, an optimistic analysis of of human violence in some sense, where we've got to. Are we, are, is that at risk of making us complacent, though, about the violent acts that do occur? No, I, in fact, I think quite the opposite. If, um, if you think that there's nothing that can ever be done about violence, people will always kill each other, uh, either in general or in particular hell holes in the world, then it's easy to think, well, why even bother to address the problem? They're always going to be killing each other. Um, uh, it would be idealism, romantic, utopian, to even try to bring the violence rates down. If you look at the graphs and it says, well, something that we have been doing collectively has been working, that is what energizes you to figure out what's gone right and do more of it in the future. Uh, and that's why I think it's important to emphasize that what we might think of as intractable conflicts may not be. Uh, for many decades, people just assumed that sub-Saharan Africa would constantly be torn by war. Turns out that the number of wars and the number of deaths in war have fallen by more than 50% just over the last 15 years or so. So even in a part of the world that by our stereotype is permanently in flames, turns out not to be. Interesting. Any thoughts on, on that? I mean, Elizabeth, I know you've read Stephen's book and you wrote a rather critical review of it in The New Yorker, if I dare bring it up. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I think that um, what human history shows us is that, hum as, as, as Stephen said, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult uh, to make predictions, especially about the future, but one of the great projects uh, of modern Western thought, you know, the Enlightenment, has been that if, if we do things the right way, uh, if we educate people, uh, you know, re reason will prevail. And, and we've seen that, unfortunately, tragically, we've seen that, you know, break down uh, at several crucial uh, and horrifying and close to apocalyptic junctures. And I just don't know that we can say, you know, on the basis of, of what, ha what has, you know, definitely statistically been a relatively peaceful moment um, that we've overcome uh, the, those moments of breakdown. I, I, I think, unfortunately, history shows us uh, that there are moments of breakdown there, there that we, we couldn't have predicted. You know, no one, no one predicts the Spanish Inquisition. No one, no one predicted World War I and, and, and no one predicted World War II and, and unfortunately they happened. Um, and they were crises uh, of, of our confidence in ourselves. And, you know, have we overcome uh, the forces that, that, that would uh, bring us to some point again? I, 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 and unfortunately, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, once again, we're, we're going to find out, not necessarily those of us in, our room, in this room tonight, but, you know, our kids and our, our grandkids. We are as smart as we are dumb, <laughs> I guess, as a species. And, uh, Tim, looking at our response to climate change, and Australia's an interesting case study now, obviously, um, do you, do you think that we have it in us to solve this big, hairy, audacious problem? Well, Garrett, looking at the current government, you'd have to think that they're either trying to hasten the end of the world as we know it or, or try to hold but, back the end of the world well, as we know it. But irrespective, irrespective of this current... But, but, <laughs> but, uh, but if I could... Yeah, just, but, but, 
Just, just to say though, look at yeah. Kyoto. Sure. Kyoto look, the, presented an yeah. opportunity. It yeah, never, yeah. it hasn't come no. to fruition. Things have changed dramatically since Kyoto. Um, you know, we're in a position now where, look, ten years ago when I wrote the Weathermakers, which was about our, you know, where we were in terms of climate change, we were emitting about 32 gigatons of CO2 into the atmosphere a year. That was an awesome figure. We're now up to 43. So the crisis is advancing upon us very quickly. If you take a carbon budget approach. You know, uh, we can say we need, we could probably burn a thousand billion tonnes of carbon between 2000 and 2050. We've already burnt 40% of that budget. So we are tracking a worst case scenario. At the same time that's happened though, uh, sources of clean energy have become spectacularly cheaper. So the price of production for solar panels has declined by 80% in the last four years. That's a massive decrease in costs. It's making them competitive with with burning coal, for example, or close to in some, some cases. In terms of wind energy, we're seeing a revolution now that is taking what was almost a bespoke industry, you know, like a homemade industry, and truly um, making it a manufacturing platform like automobiles. It's automating it, everything's going to be containerized, it'll all be easily shipped, and the costs are dropping dramatically. So we've, and, and electric vehicles, I mean, you know, Tesla now is capitalized on half the value of GM. They're only making 40,000 cars, but people obviously think there's something in this, you know. So I think we've got the tools, most of the tools we need. What we lack still is the will, and it's not the will to pursue clean energy approaches. What we lack is the will to confront the vested interest to close down the polluting industries. And that is the big issue. And we've got a very limited time frame within which to do that. Is it, is it just that though, Tim? Is it just that though? Because also, there seems to be a tendency, it's a sort of opposite of catastrophizing, and that is in the face of what some might describe as a catastrophe, we also have a tendency to turn the other way, see no evil, hear no evil, you know, and, and head in the sand. I've got a Dutch friend who, uh, a historian, who was studying the Dutch response to the build-up to the Second World War, and he said, if you look at Dutch newspapers in 1933, front page after front page is about the Nazis and the threat, and through to 36, you know, whatever. By the time you get to 38, there's sporting results on the front page or something else. It's, there's nothing about the threat from Germany because by then it had got so overwhelming that people turned off. And I think that's probably true in our society here that the threat of climate change is now so big that some people have turned off. They don't even just... Some people don't just turn off. They actively push back. Yeah, that's right. And, look, I think that there's... The world as we know it is ending, one way or the other, right? And there's a lot of old people, old guys over 65, mostly white, who kind of, you know, have a big stake in that world, you know? And they're in the fossil fuel industry and they've got their particular view of it and they'll keep pushing back, you know? And, and they're very influential and very powerful. I mean, look at Rupert Murdoch. I mean, that man is responsible for a lot of the world view about climate change, you know, through the, through the News Limited Empire. Um, so I think that there's, there's that whole issue. Um, but there are a lot of young people out there who know this new technology, who are determined to push it. Um, they'll go as far as they can, but we, we live in kind of partial democracies, you know, and, and it's, 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 the, it's the regulations that we create in partial democracies like ours that will tell the difference. And if I can just give you one example, recently Australia, for those visitors who don't live here, we've just gone through a period of reassessing whether we should have a renewable energy target in this country. That's a target for wind and solar power as a total mix of the, of the electricity generation for Australia. Um, it's been, the, the energy target has been supported through five electoral cycles by both sides of politics. Just this week, this new government um, has appointed an expert committee of climate sceptics and fossil fuel interests mostly, um, who've, who've come up with the idea we should get, not get rid of the energy target, but certainly not pursue it with any vigour into the future. And, and so it's that, that decision or that suggestion in the political process that will slow the uptake of clean but energy in this if, case. if solar's come down so much in price, why does it need to be subsidised? Because it hasn't quite come down to the point yet of being directly competitive, particularly when people with the monopolies, the transmission monopolies, charge you extra. So I've just put... I have a rental house in Melbourne, right? I've just put solar panels on the roof and divided the cost with my landlord. Then I get a bill from the transmission company for $360 and it's, they said it's for a new uh, meter. And I said, hold on a minute, I've got a brand new smart meter on this damn house. What's the story? I said, oh, no, sorry, it's not really for a new meter. It's to repro 
program the meter. And so what does that actually mean? Does it mean someone comes around to the house? Oh, no. So does it mean someone sits in an office and pushes a button? Yeah, pretty much. So th right, 360 bucks for that. So they are pushing back and they will make the cost of solar less competitive if they can, if, if, if the government doesn't decide, and we being, you know, the ones who elect the government, if we decide we don't want to move in that direction. Jan, do you think we have the smarts to recognise, you know, something really catastrophic happening and, and actually do something about it, to, to collectively work together in the way that perhaps we haven't been able to with climate change yet? Uh, yes, absolutely. It, it, I think uh, even though climate change is, um, uh, is like a massive problem uh, in, and it's kind of hard, kind of hard to, it's, it's not very tractable, uh, like there are people working on it, and also the nice thing, nice thing about climate change is that it's relatively slow. Uh, and there have been examples where we, have been, we actually have been able to address, like for example, the uh, ozone layer uh, problem was to, uh, well, humans created it, humans sold it uh, to a large degree. Uh, and also the different uh, risks come in different kind of uh, shapes and sizes. So, so. Uh, I think climate change is in a way kind of, uh, uh, yeah, like I said, intractable because it's a side effect of the entire human economy. Mm. Uh, whereas uh, things like uh, uh, risks from uh, uh, new scientific experiments or risks from new, uh, uh, new specific technologies, they're much more tractable because, like, uh, I mean, I personally perhaps know the people who are, who are, who are going to do them. Uh, or, or I know people who, who know those people. Uh, so, so we don't have to actually have to mobilize the entire world to address them, but we just have to uh, uh, have a much more tractable task at hand. Yes, indeed. Stephen Pinker, are you, dare I say, an optimist? Well, um, I think it's unwise to try to engage in prophecy uh, when there's so many things that we don't know. So um, you know, I would not be willing to say that in you know, 50 years we will or will not have solved the problem. In fact, it's not the kind of thing where there's a binary answer whether we solve it or not. It's just a question of how, how bad will it be. I do believe that in the space of uh, human ingenuity, there are ways of, um, of, of minimizing the damage uh, between policies such as carbon tax, technologies such as possible, uh, that the need to be explored uh, ideally with the impetus of a carbon tax that will simply make it naturally natural for lots of uh, entrepreneurs to be incentivized to, to explore te technologies, together with government investment for those technologies that can't be done out of a garage, perhaps uh, a new generation of safer nuclear reactors, pebble bed or thorium. Uh, probably the, the solution, if it exists, would have to involve a lot of different technologies simply because of the magnitude of the problem, including conservation, including uh, solar and so on. But, um, and there are ideas that have not yet been discovered. We don't know what they are because they haven't been discovered. Mm. But uh, if you uh, set climate change as a problem to be solved, as opposed to thinking of it as an apocalypse that we have visited upon ourselves and deserve to be punished for our sinful ways, and our only solution is to um, completely, uh, radically change our lifestyle and value system. I think that's unlikely to uh, solve the problem. I think thinking of it as a big mess that we've gotten ourselves into and uh, what are the ways that we can get the numbers to match up with the reality uh, I, I do think there's a, the solution exists, yeah. Elizabeth, as someone who's spent many, many days and months and years in the field with climate scientists, what about you? Well, I, I, once again, I think everything that everyone has said has, has, has a lot of, of truth in it. Um, but I think that, you know, here we are in a, in a country that had a carbon tax until very recently and, and has gotten rid of it. So it's hard to see. Um, you know, us making much progress here. And as Tim said, we've dug ourselves into a bigger, bigger hole. That, that's just, a, you know, a numerical, you know, fact. Um, and there's a lot of warming in the pipeline. 
uh, that there's nothing we can do about. So I think that most climate scientists at this point would say, you know, we're, we're not talking about solving climate change. That, that's just not even an option. We're talking about, you know, the difference between disaster, potential disaster for, once again, for, for human civilization, not necessarily an existential threat to humanity, but, but an existential threat probably to many other species. Um, do we have the capacity to deal with it? I think, you know, yes, I do think we have the capacity to deal with it. Unfortunately, we haven't shown uh, that we're going to, and that's, that's the big gulf, the gulf between uh, doing it uh, and having the capacity. And I think it is, unfortunately, uh, we do stand at some kind of, you know, and, and maybe we always think we do, but we do stand, I feel, at some kind of hinge of history and we're gonna make choices uh, without making them consciously, quite possibly, that are going to affect, you know, really affect life on this planet more or less forever. That's the point of the Anthropocene. Uh, and that we need to bring those choices into consciousness and we need to try to make them the right way. Can I just, as a last question, it's probably an odd one, but should we just make peace with this possibility that as a species, we're sowing the seeds for our own destruction and that some other life form will rise up after us, that we don't actually matter that much, that if we, if we end up ending, life will go on in some form. Not necessarily. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a really cruel last question? Yes. <laughs> well, just... Well. <laughs> Are we that important? I mean, well, I often think if we don't solve climate change, life, well, human life might end, but something else will evolve after us. Well, not necessarily. Um, <laughs> and uh, also that's, I, I, I think it's not the relevant question because I mean, we may not matter to the planet. The planet doesn't care about us but because planets don't care about anything. They're not sentient, they're not intelligent, but we matter to each other. And uh, so, yeah, if there's an enormous amount of preventable suffering and or famine or disease or waste, uh, then that matters because it matters to us. And I don't, I don't care what the planet thinks about us, but I do care about what, what we think about each other. Good answer. Jan. Uh, yeah, I once talked to a roboticist uh, who basically presented the same argument that, like, uh, uh, like if we create something that is uh, smarter than us, shouldn't we just treat it as, a, as, our, as our kind of children? And, uh, uh, and so if, even if it wipes us out, it's okay. And then I asked, like, look, do you have children? <laughs> and, and do you realize that they will be wiped out? And then his answer was probably the biggest euphemism I've heard ever in my life was that, yeah, there will be a local inconvenience. <laughs> Sorry, that was an amazing answer. Okay. <laughs> Wasn't it? <laughs> Look, I, I think we really are important. I mean, life has been present on Earth for between 3.5 and 3.8 billion years. And in all of that time, it has only thrown up one intelligent species capable of creating a superorganism. If we become extinct, I don't think our like will come this way again. I mean, the Earth's only got another billion or two years to run anyway because of the sun and all the rest of it. Um, but what we, what we are, we have, given, we have given coherence to Gaia, to the Earth system in a way. We, I, I, I must say, I think of us very much as being a brain to Earth's body. And very much like our brain. I mean, our brain is probably the most selfish and greedy organ of the whole body. It weighs 2% of our body mass but uses 20% of the energy that we consume. It'll shut down every other organ in the body before it, de it deprives itself of one iota of oxygen. And we're the same, you know, we're selfie and selfish and greedy, but we all live by one rule. We know that we can't bankrupt the body we depend on, and in our case, the body is the earth. And what we've given the earth is self-awareness. We've given it a, co we're in the process of giving it a coordinated uh, system through our sensors that run from the deepest ocean to the agricultural lands of the planet to the satellites that, that swirl above us. Um, we are, in a sense, that brain of the Earth, and I think that's an incredibly precious thing. And um, I, 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 I do care whether we go extinct or not, and I don't want to think that we will vanish and just leave uh, a, a brainless Earth once more. And, and not only have we given the Earth a brain, we've given the Earth a chance to reproduce. Maybe in the very distant future, we'll be able to colonise other planets. And that is an act of Gaian reproduction. We can take, perhaps, the Earth system. It's science fiction today, but without us, even that possibility, I think, wouldn't mm. exist. 
Elizabeth. Thank you, Tim. Great answers, all of you. Um, I, I, I do think that's taking sort of um, resignation uh, a step too, too far. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the other thing that, that, that we have to keep in mind is the, the thing that's going to, you know, it's not going to wipe out unless you had a, you know, I suppose you could have some kind of wonderful virus that dust takes out humans. But, you know, the ways that we're planning to destroy the earth, the ways that we're really intent uh, on, on destroying ourselves, it seems, are more likely to have a very, very profound effect on all of life on earth. So I, I, don't, think it's, I don't think it's that surgical. So I, I, I do think that we need to, um, as opposed to just uh, being sort of knights of, of infinite resignation and, and consigning ourselves to, you know, the evolutionary sort of dustbin, uh, we, we need to sort of step up and, and, and take responsibility uh, for what we're doing. That would seem to me to be a sort of more appropriate response uh, to what's going on on planet Earth right now. I suspect there's quite a bit of agreement about that in the room, is there? <laughs> well, what a wonderful opportunity to hear four fantastic thinkers uh, speak. Thank you so much for being here and enjoy the rest of your festival. Thank you.